Hi, I'm Ulysses, and this is Music, Meaning, and Mystery, a podcast for the other musicians. This month's episode is a conversation with Kristen Hauser. Kristen is an animal communicator, and we talk all about animals and music. You can find Kristen's website at faunaspeak.com. She holds weekly events as well as a monthly whale and dolphin circle. You can also follow her on Instagram at faunaspeak. Before we go to the conversation, I'd like to announce the winner of the giveaway that's been running the last few months. The winner is Shane. Your infinite ambient music app is on its way. If you're so inclined, please send an email eventually and tell us about your experience with the world of infinite ambient music. Congratulations, Shane, and thank you for listening to the podcast. Okay, now we're going to listen to my conversation with Kristen Hauser. What do you call what you do? Is it, I've, is it animal communicator or what is it that you call what you do? I refer to myself as animal communicator. I like the simplicity okay. of the term, but it is, of course, as you could imagine, a far more realm than that. But I find, especially too, in a craft that is already on the frontier or precipice of something that people aren't too familiar with, it is nice to find those common descriptors that explore a frontier, but also are indicative of something we already have a concept of. So, okay. So people will be listening to this podcast about music and I will have a guest on that, who is an animal communicator and they'll probably be like, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) So let's, let's talk a little bit what animal communication is and your work. And, uh, we'll save the twist about how this relates to music in, in, in in a, in a bit. So, um, what is animal communication? Animal communication is telepathic exchanges at the soul level is how I would describe it. Lots of folks have different ways to describe it, I suppose, because each individual is such a unique conduit of information. So for myself specifically, I like the descriptor telempathic because I have always felt what other people felt to an uncomfortable degree. So as you can imagine, it took me many years to figure out the minutia of what was what I was experiencing as a as a very feeling and communicative being unable to and unwilling at some level to tamp down any of these receptors of information. So it is very much immersion into the world of feelings and translating those feelings into a language that is digestible and communicable to fellow human beings as we are still remembering all of these abilities and ways of being that we have encoded in us. Our mental image of this may be like something like X-Men or something where you you pet a dog and you get a flash of of something, um, which I'm sure, you know, I'm sure uh, I've read my Jeffrey Kripal and I'm sure it has some basis in in actual experience, but I'd like to know how you experienced that. When did you, when did that first, you realized first, 
uh, that this is separate from your thoughts and, and how you were able to identify that distinct uh, phenomenon from, from regularly, you know, mind chatter. I think the challenging thing for humans who are on the journey of remembering their telepathic abilities is minimizing or isolating the chatter into individual voices. And so there's a lot of work around limiting thoughts, socialized belief systems, and also the familiarity of the voices that we hear daily that we assume are our own, are in actuality, the voices of many. In our current iteration of society, we are under the illusion that we're these really singular, hyper-individualistic beings to a degree. That's sort of like the way that our society, especially in the Western world, operates. So I think that that has an impact on our psyches as well. So we are so familiar with all the voices that we hear each day that we confuse them with our own. I remember how clever I thought I was when my cats requested something and how sweet I was to remember to do that for them. <laughs> but, you know, they, they quickly corrected me and, sa and said that, you know, we planted that for you. We communicated that for you. You're not as clever as you seem. We, we made that request. So a lot of this work within the realm of telepathic or animal communication or communication with any being is really separating out the tangled web of all of the information that we're receiving on a daily basis. The challenge too in the modern world is that we're saturated. And some of those saturating frequencies of information are also debilitating or paralyzing or confusing. You know, that's why it's so helpful to go where telepathy is the main language, like the forest or the sea. There's so many supportive energies there that we don't always get to be immersed in in a human society. Currently, if you go out into the city, it's more rare to experience an open heart and a smiling face than it is to not. So I always like to encourage people that I work with too to go where telepathy is the dominant language and to where the energies are supportive of this process. It's just an absolute, really interesting rabbit hole when you start going down, exploring how we've been socialized, how we've been taught to interpret our thoughts. And the animals always really encourage us to slow down because the communications are so incredibly subtle that we're oftentimes missing them or we have an intersectional thought that comes in and basically neutralizes that information or that message, because we have a lot of conflicting thoughts that say, that's not possible. That's not real. You're not that special. Who would want to talk to you? Right. Because that's a lot of the feedback that we've gotten in the human world. So we, it really is an act of courage to not only slow down enough to listen and separate all the thoughts, but to trust them and to find yourself worthy of them. I think surprisingly, that's something that I hear the most from people is that they don't feel worthy of the communications. And that's a way to tamp them down because oftentimes the people who hear the most communications 
love and value the world so much that they're so overwhelmed by the rapid degradation or destruction or development of our world that there's a lot of that guilt and shame around those things too that also prohibit communications. Guilt, fear, and shame are about the most unsuccessful conduits of communication, love, trust, openness, vulnerability. Those are some of the most successful conduits of communication. So the animals always have to help typically lay some groundwork too in our self-perceptions and our perceptions of the world so that the communications can come through a little bit clearer for us. I like that you challenge the question. The question originates of a paradigm that doesn't fit the answer. Um, you're kind of describing, well, first of all, you substantiate the cats are, are actually in charge after all, uh, which we all suspect. Um, mm -hmm. But you also seem to be describing uh, thoughts not being necessarily originating from a single point in a material field, but rather a, a sort of web. Maybe a metaphor would be that you could use is the brain as receptor rather than um, projector mm. or, or as much a receptor as a projector. I don't know. I'm 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 stretching myself a, a little far so that I can try to properly understand mm -hmm. what it is. But I I would I would expect that it's like a trying to map this territory never takes you to the territory, uh, which is which is sort of why why I was asking like your experience of it. So it seems like when you had that experience with your cats there was a back and forth. You weren't isolated. Am I roughly in the ballpark of how you discovered this or am I, feel free to correct me. It's the origin point of my discovery was more mythological and narrative, which it always is. And the, you know, the best stories have good arcs. <laughs> uh, so I can explain that in a moment, but yeah, I love how you described that the framework of our understanding in which we currently hold doesn't have the capacity to be a vessel for what is beyond that framework. So the animals often in a Zen master way will have to answer our question in two parts. I will answer that not in the way that you thought you would get an answer. It won't be as material likely as you asked of it to be. A lot of times those material questions that we really want to ask are rooted in scarcity or fear anyways. So they always try to redirect our energy to be able to receive a more wholesome, holistic or higher expression of an idea of which all of these things right, exist most wonderfully in the higher realms and higher expressions. So anything that they can do to help... Mm, lighten us up a bit, offer some levity to us, helps us expand our abilities to receive uh, this information. So yes, a lot of times there it's, it's twofold where they not only deliver an answer that is somehow soul nourishing and ultimately does answer our question, but they also provide a framework to a new framework from for which we can pivot into that expands our understanding of ourselves in the world. In the path of my personal path and what I've witnessed in others, 
is that it's a series of initiations and rites of passage. Just like you said, you have to have the experiences as a benchmark or reference point to be able to understand what you are within and to progress into the next thing. It's this really layered experience. You know, if you were zapped with the superpower, it would likely fry your nervous system. You would have, you'd get a whole lot of bumps and bruises and acclimating to that. So they are very careful in not only how they present the information, but when and what is our capacity to do so, just in the way that a parent raises a child and knows that they're acclimating to being here on earth. They might not look at it in such a cosmic way, but I feel like that's a lot of what benevolent parents do is make space for that child to slowly acclimate into the world. But my personal origin story was quite magical in terms of the themes and motifs of my own personal life. I always loved Orca. My whole life grew up. I was born in Kentucky and had an absolute affinity for the Orca whale clan and loved Free Willy, had their art everywhere. I would just look at whale and dolphin books and my affinity for them never waned, no matter how I was socialized or all the things that I went through. Uh, they were somehow this guiding light. And I was raised very Christian, basically Southern Baptist in the South. And so the only real spiritual teacher or person that I was allowed to talk to, prescribe to, pray to, et cetera, was Jesus. So I had basically like Jesus and then the, the subtle support of the whales and dolphins uh, in my life. So it was amazingly full circle when my journey was really activated, uh, I was in the San Juan Islands in Friday Harbor in a bookstore called Serendipity, Serendipity Books, aptly named. And I found a book called Communicating with Orca, The Whale's Perspective by my future mentor, Mary Getton. I picked up the book and I felt I had a full body sensation. It was just like a realization that this is the moment in which my life was changing <laughs> and I could feel it. I think I flipped through the first two or three pages and immediately called the author, Mary, and she had moved to Florida. So I called her Florida number and she invited me into her home. Two months later, I just had that happened to be my next trip. Uh, I worked out quite serendipitously and she explained to me every about every single question I had and answered them in the capacity that I had the I had at that moment to experience them. And she told me mind-blowing stories about conservation, doing conservation work from her living room with a team of 75 other animal communicators working all over the world to calling Sasquatch in the hills of Washington, just the, like to being able to talk to stone beings and planetary spheres as well, and just sort of opened up my mind in such a radical way to the possibility that not only orca and animal communication was a thing, but that all of life, all beings have a sentience if we have the perception to connect with it and that those conversations are available to us. And that support system, most importantly, is available to us at all times. Okay. So I want to embrace that initiation like in this conversation and i'm, I'm inviting uh listeners to to do the same at least temporarily because i've studied initiation a little bit 
mm-hmm. um, and I've, I've written about it. Uh, the um, the old initiation stories often go descent to the underworld. So you're you're going to another world, uh, to an alien place, and you're ma- you're making otherworldly contact. So you're engaging with a language that isn't yours, and there's a often a dismemberment. The worldview is being torn apart and then put back together in a way that is in better relation to the field, field of life. Invariably, uh, it results in the acquisition of magical power. One example would be animal communication. So I got an idea about how we might actually narratively put that into this podcast there. I'm, I'm struggling to, to, to just say, like, let's, let's see this as an invitation. If, if the best way of communicating is by openness and vulnerability, let's let go of, of these worldviews that we kind of hold on as hold on to as like security blankets and l- let ourselves, you know, go through the initiation po- process and get taken apart by, by, by the field of life and put back together better. Right. So let's talk about the fields perspective on music. So first, the paradigm, which is more than likely incorrect, because I think there's no other way to be than be incorrect, because (laughs) you're always learning. So that means a constant initiation. So the incorrect way of looking at it is that birds sing as mating calls. And um, it's, it would be a utilitarian perspective Mm -hmm. on on the, the song of, of birds and animals. Um, and it's also incorrect to think that the barking of a dog isn't music, whereas the song of a bird is. And it's mm-hmm. also incorrect to assume that it is only the sound waves that we perceive that are the music. What do you know about the animal perspective on music that might deepen our relationship to it? I love how you described it as an ongoing understanding. I feel like the rigidity of our current iteration of society, especially as one that clings to a fabric that is disintegrating before our eyes, you know, that that tightening of a grip only feels to be increasing at the moment. I've always sort of giggled at the scientific community as much love and admiration as I have for them. Uh, and, and appreciation of the tangible work and observation that they're doing, especially when it comes to a lot of the research that is going on right now around decoding whale communication and whale song. There is, you can feel within that current iteration of exploration that there is not, there, there hasn't been an initiation prior to that observation and research there feels to me to be a missing piece, which is that these things cannot be interpreted. They must be felt in the same way that we go and listen to the most beautiful concerto. Like we don't pick apart the notes. We breathe it in, feel it in, soak it in and immerse ourselves in the experience and ambiance of that music. I think that's the way that the world prefers us. This field, as you refer to it, prefers us to experience things because in that space, we're in our joy. All of our receptors are engaged. They're not walled off, shut down, closed off. 
And in those spaces of energetic and nervous system comfort, we can relax our shoulders a little bit more, open our heart a little bit more, sense and feel more. And I think there's an amazing intelligence that is held within all the animals of the world that create sound, song, and music, knowing how imperative that is to the functioning of life. Some species are more intentional and considerate about that process as it's sort of encoded into their mission. I feel like other species make sound and it has a deep impact to the world, but that's not their main motivation. For instance, the whales, as you can imagine, the humpbacks, they're songs that literally changed the course of humanity. When the humpback whale song was released on vinyl in the 70s, it sparked a cultural revolution in a way that isn't spoken about as obviously as other things that were happening in that era that sparked cultural revolution, like the resistance to the Vietnam War. But the whale song created an adjoining cloud of revolution to that space and a rebellion against the intense industrial whaling that was still the profound industrial whaling that was still going on all over the world. That literally we were still whaling sperm whales for spermaceti oil to lubricate missiles to blow up people and kill people. Did <laughs> the irony of all that and the whales literally coming like an alien force, as you say, the initiators are from an alien land with an alien song to basically save us from ourselves. <laughs> and yet so cleverly allow us to think that we're saving them. And that's really where I am humbled and increasingly curious to their ways and to their methodology. I heard this story once of a pilot, the military was doing some testing and they were about to do something pretty gnarly that they had some reservations about even. And I would, I would hope they had some reservations about what they were doing, I should say. But there was literally like an alien ob flying object that came out of nowhere and literally neutralized what they were doing the beam that they were sending off or what have you. Not sure what the mechanics of all of it was. I heard this story a long time ago. And that does breach into the territory of the acknowledgement of other intergalactic civilizations. So, you know, we're, <laughs> we're breaching some frontiers here, but I feel it's all really connected. The, the whales themselves are really connected to the star beings and their cosmology. They're, what I've learned most from them is this incredible terrestrial and celestial way of being simultaneously. So I think in their, in their whale songs, especially in the humpback too, there's this like song of the spheres, song of the stars that reminds us of our own cosmic origins. Again, I can't qualify all of these stories and information, but there was a deep resonance within me when I saw the song of the humpback and the song or the sound of the sound that we cannot perceive of the earth spinning were quite similar when they were spatially drawn. The animals are absolute masters of their craft. And if you think of, you know, anything that you want to master, it's like a French braid. The longer that you do it, the more strands that you realize you can 
braid into it to create a stronger and more beautiful composition. So I think the animals have been mastering these crafts for so long that we can't even identify, you know, all of the intelligence that is encoded into these songs, songs that are not only beautiful to our ears, but healing to our bodies, healing to our planet, recalibrating to the energies of earth, to the subtle layers of earth that most humans are not even in acknowledgement of. So, you know, just as the earthworm decomposes the forest floor, the animals and are, are tending to the frequencies of earth in ways in which we are not privy to at this point. And again, we get slowly initiated into those spaces. So music is so multifaceted sound and song is so multifaceted. I, I feel that, you know, we're going to look back at some of the things that we're doing in this era as absolute barbarism. And we find it to be so evolved and so modern and sleek and shiny and silver and metallic, but you know, sound therapy, frequency therapy, these are things that Nikolai Tesla was like, you understand sound frequency vibration, you understand the universe, right? So it just seems like this is our inevitable trajectory. And we have to be patient as I think some humans need more obvious initiations in such a physical and material way. Whereas I think others can just hear a song <laughs> and, and become enlightened about a subject. Right. Uh, but that is also evidence of a person who has had a lot of experiences that support that. So uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot in song and sound. In my project, I've struggled to for models, role models for musicians, because the, uh, well, I'm not going to say why I think that is, but I would say that I've struggled with, with a sense that we can do something more meaningful and more mysterious with music, that the current way we generally do music is unbefitting of its vast power mm -hmm. and of the awe we should we should embrace when encountering it but that doesn't tell me what to do next this idea of the animals making music a certain way with a certain purpose can help build useful metaphor that might bridge you know the way we make music now in, in, in a more beautiful way like you were making comparisons between like the different species and societally, I can kind of see that as different like guilds in, in the human world. Mm -hmm. So we could have like a, a guild of certain different kinds of musicians. I can kind of see different musicians having different purposes with music. And perhaps we need to see the rise of a new music guild. So that's not necessarily you know the gig economy music guild right <laughs> it's a it's a whole other a whole other game um yeah i was thinking i don't know if it's too soon to do that it probably isn't time went by really fast i thought maybe we could see if we can talk to the animals so could we do that of course i think in so many ways we have been too. They're weaving in and out of our psyches and subconscious. And this is just a pivot to kind of bringing them 
more to the forefront, but I feel them very present with both of us. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so how would we go about doing that? Well, the way I'm being prompted, I suppose, is are there particular questions that you have for the animals? They can come through as specific ambassadors. Certain species can come through as an ambassador, or you can ask a certain species a question that you'd like to ask about music or their process or anything like that. I think too specificity in these conversations illuminates so much more just because it's such a vast field. How might musicians begin to learn how to make music that is in right relation for us? Is that narrow enough? Yeah. So as you could imagine, they're pointing us to the heart space and it can be a process of us sort of finding our heart space in our bodies and knowing when we divert from that heart space or are cozy within that heart space. There's oftentimes they say vulnerability that comes from being within the heart. So it can, it seems like so easy to speak about, but there can be discomfort accompanying moving sort of down from the head to the heart or moving up from the fear kind of that we have sitting in the root, moving up to the heart. So they say that if if we don't understand what that means or how to do that, maybe they can teach us a little bit how to in that moment, in this moment, because again, they like to create these benchmarks of experience so that we have a reference point moving forward on how to do a thing because they know they just can't simply tell us something and um, expect us to embody it without sort of being guided through the process. So they're sort of taking us into an initiation of feeling and sensation using uh, using vibration. So there's lots of different um, animals that sort of have a base, a base sound to them. I remember being in Baja and serendipitously ran across these gray whale researchers. They were triangulating gray whale sounds using underwater mics in the lagoons, hoping to analyze the behavior from the boats, listen to the sounds beneath the water and draw some conclusions there. So the triangulation of the whale song, the gray whales are, they, they hang out on the coasts, but they're also pretty private. They're way more private than the humpbacks are, for instance. So I had heard some of these really early recordings just on someone's laptop of gray whales that sound like Congolese drums or like just this deep, powerful drumming, just bass, root, core of the earth vibrations. <laughs> and that there, those sounds have stayed with me in a way in which I didn't realize they would be when I first heard them. It was a powerful experience to hear them. So any animals that have the that the deep bellows you can almost imagine like the bellow of a mountain lion that intensifying of coming from the cavity of a mountain lion you know bellowing within so we have these deep sounds and then the crustaceans are coming through and they do these little clicks with their claws if you've ever been swimming underwater you can the ambient noise of the ocean is oftentimes crustacean claws. Click, 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 And what they're doing there is sort of pulling things and 
creating equilibrium within our energy fields. They said there's a lot of stuff around us that is cluttering and for all intents and purposes, distractive. They said that in a, the process of moving into our heart too is acknowledging the deep bellows and sounds of our root, but also using this crustacean claws to clear things out of the way. There's a lot of preemptive things too that we have to do here. And snake is coming in, which can oftentimes create a lot of feelings in people. But snake is um, a profound transformer. And the medicine of snake is just an initiate in itself. And sometimes we don't want to necessarily go down the road of initiation. We know the, the, the prowess of it there. So uh, sometimes we can have physical or energetic fear of snake. So snake is coming in to kind of do a full body reset of our entire frames as, the, as if the snake would shed its skin. So we're just sort of shedding an outer layer, almost like an exfoliation again. And what that's doing, Snake says, is creating a more sensitive and receptive environment. We have elk and bison also coming in standing on either side of us in this process to make us feel safe and protected in this space. Because a lot of our a lot of our feelings of really moving from our heart are coming from a place of not feeling safe. You know, they create this extra layer of protection in their strong bodies um, to our process. Skunk has wanted to come through the entire time. <laughs> I don't question them, but the the sort of um, the, the beautiful tail, the beautiful stripes, or the, the stripe, oftentimes we so associate skunk with their odor that we forsake their beauty in the process. And they say they quite like their odor. And that is smell is music too, right? It's a sensation. It, it, it invokes a response, you know, and they make their own little sounds. They're, they're like a one man full sensory band. So, and they're also too, like their tail, they keep showing me their tail moving about and they have a very cat-like way of them as well. So we sort of have this cornucopia of creatures. Again, when trying to help us do something to, right? Like the simple question of, how do we move to a space of creating more authentic music and moving from our hearts? They have to give us all of these other tools to do that too, because they're literally re-frameworking aspects of our body and landscape to engage in that process and to be more fully in it. They say that, you know, the animals, and for instance, you know, skunk fully embraces who they are and doesn't abandon parts of themselves or diminish aspects of themselves because they get feedback <laughs> that is um, not necessarily altruistic. Uh, they still continue being them. They still are confident in who they are and uh, feel quite beautiful and beloved despite human interpretations of, of them. So they'd like to be skunk, ironically. <laughs> I, I wouldn't have expected them to come up but that's, uh, that's always the best. And we can further explore two skunk medicine, skunk meaning, skunk might even come into our 
perceptions serendipitously, like maybe even after you listen to this, uh, to inspire your journey with music. And they're not, they don't consider themselves profound musicians in the way that other species are. You know, they're not like the bird clan, they're not like the cicada clan, but they do offer something emblematic of what we're striving towards, they say. And that is an embodied confidence in our differences and our deviations from the norm and all of the things that we encompass, stinky and beautiful alike.